One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Second Tier Podcast. I'm Ryan Dilks and I'm joined by the 2022 to my 2023. It's Justin Peach. Good day to you, Ryan. Justin, Happy New Year to you. How was your New Year's? It was It was good. It was relatively quiet. Played a few games. Played double. Have you ever played double? Uh, I don't think I have. Honestly, it's, it's, it's like Snap, but on steroids. And um, you can play it with children or adults. It's a fantastic game. This isn't an ad, by the way. It is truly, truly. Um, it just brings out a, a really competitive side in you and one that you might not have realised is there. Can you explain for us what double is in under 20 seconds without making it boring? It's basically Snap. It's got loads of random images on, uh, like um, like birds, like cartoony. cartoony. You failed. You failed. Oh, you had 20 seconds to not make it boring. Is it basically... Cards Against Humanity mixed with Snap. No, there's no Cards Against Humanity aspect in it. You don't say anything. You literally just put a card down. If there's a, a an image matching on your card to that of another card, and there's several images, so it's really hard to see. If there's one matching, you've got to put it down. Um, honestly, you could punch people in it. It's crazy. I wish this game was a lot more interesting than you're making it out to be. Welcome to the number one championship podcast, the second tier. Thank you for joining us wherever you are. We're going to walk through all the games in the championship from the past couple of days. Talk about some of the news from the past few days as well. And then we'll finish off with Diddy or Didn't He right at the end. So let's kick things off with Burnley, who have now won six on the trot in the championship after beating Swansea 2-1. Ian Martin getting both. And I don't know about you, Justin, but I love a left-back who's got a brilliant <laughs> left foot. Maybe it's because I used to love Roberto Carlos back in the day, but Martin has got a proper deadly left peg on him, Ante. Yeah, there's Ian Hart as well is another one. I'm trying to think of more in my head on a very mm. split second, which is difficult. But yeah, it was a, it was a beautifully struck free kick and maybe the keeper could have done better. Um but nonetheless, he's, he's got that quality. I didn't know he actually had that in his locker, to be fair. Um, and having a set-piece taker uh, for, for Burnley just gives him another dimension. I know a lot of fans have been um, t- you know, sort of teasing Josh Brownhill for his um, inability to hit the target from a free kick. Um, but yeah, he's a player who's got plenty of quality. And I think if, he, if he's got that in his locker as well, as I said, it, it gives Burnley another, another avenue of attack, especially if they're not quite at it, which they weren't here against Swansea. Yeah, the free kick was excellent and there'll be question marks over the Swansea goalkeeper Stephen Bender for the seconds. He still hit it really well though, hence why it caused Bender all sorts of problems. But mm-hmm. that's Martson's fourth goal of the season, his eighth goal contribution. He has been excellent and we had him down as our left back in our halfway team of the season and his performances have by no means taken any sort of a downturn in that time at all. I mean, any player who's played the majority of games in this Burnley machine has got to be recognised as one of the best in the league in their position because his team is so good. Uh, And the fact he's only 20, I really do wonder how good he could be in years to come because I think he's got a big, big future ahead of him. Burnley were relatively comfortable 
in the second half. Swansea made them work and it was by no means a walk in the park, but Burnley didn't really look like losing in the last 45 and that is now six wins on the trot for this magnificent Burnley side who are now five points clear of second place Sheffield United at the top of the championship 14 points clear of Blackburn in third only five teams in championship history have picked up more points after 26 games than Vincent Company's Burnley and this leads me nicely onto this question Justin are Burnley one of the best sides we've ever seen at championship level it may be slightly early asking that but I can't recall many teams having promotion essentially wrapped up before the turn of the year <laughs> like they have I think you've got to consider the fact that we're it's a bit of a it's more of an average championship season there aren't too many teams who were um who are laying gloves on him? I think um, there's not too many teams there aren't too many teams chasing automatics either which which slims that feel down massively to to those who who can put the pressure on essentially um but i think it's it's well i said i wouldn't put them in the category of one of the best championship teams uh, i've seen uh just yet it's I, I would put them in the category of one of the or if not the best um transition of a premier league team coming down into the championship and that's mainly down to their what we've said before in the past of their um transition to this possession-based style under company from lump ball 4-4-2 under Dyche. Um, the, the turnover in squad and I know outsiders won't won't think this, but they haven't been a parachute payment team by by all means. They've been a, quite prudent and measured in their recruitment. Um, not like Fulham who have, you know, boasted a wealth of resources uh, at their disposal in terms of both players and and finances as well last season. So yeah, Burnley have done it very differently and I think that's worth shouting more at this stage than perhaps labelling them the best championship team ever. Well, not only have they picked up the sixth most points after 26 games in championship history, but only that Reading side from 2006 had lost fewer games than them at this point. Just two losses all season and I can't recall too many, if any, instances where they should have lost more. They're a well-oiled machine, aren't they? And you go through each player in that starting eleven, and they're a strong contender for being the player of the season in that position. Each player knows their job and is perfect for the role that Vincent Company wants them to play. There's no square pegs in round holes in this team at all. And the strength of the bench as well is just crazy good. So in terms of results, they're undeniably one of the best teams the second tier has ever seen so far but it's not just about that it's the way they've played as well Mm. they play with such style there's such a joy to watch and the scary thing is this Burnley team could be just getting started they took a few games to get going and if their trajectory from this season is anything to go by they could be unstoppable in the second half of the season. They may very well add a few players in the transfer window as well. And they've even got players like Scott Twine, for example, who just haven't featured and could give this team even more potentially. But for me, based on what we've seen so far, without a doubt, I think they're one of the best teams we've seen in the championship. And I think they could be breaking records come the end of the season. Uh, No team has conceded more first-half goals this season than Swansea, Justin. The problem with them is either putting away chances or starting slowly in games. And I feel like the latter is the one that is really holding back Russell Martin's side in particular. Well, starting slowly in games also lends to the amount of points they've had to recover from losing positions this season. 
Um, I think I said a few weeks ago that they need to maybe start taking the onus to opposition teams. It's a really, it's a really hard thing to get to the bottom of in terms of what the solution is. You know, how do you start better? How do you prepare better for the game so you're able to take the game to opposition? Um, so you're not conceding that first goal. Um, if you look at West Brom, they were doing it under Steve Bruce. Corbrand's come in and he's fixed that. It's a very different style of play. So it's, it's. And I, I'm not sure whether it's down to that or not, but. You know, I think I don't think the Swansea side are going to progress until they start to address those sorts of key issues. Um, conceding first, I think it's a mentality thing. Um, I really do. I think it's not something that's down to style of play. It is generally just mentality, and that's something that comes down to Russell Martin in in, pre- in preparing his team, as well as the the individuals in that team making sure that they they stick to the game plan, whatever that may be. Um, it's a frustrating one because, as I say, it's the it's the one thing that's holding Swansea back. There was a battle between two relegated sides in crisis mode at Kerra Road, but Watford came out on top over Norwich thanks to a late goal from Vakum Bayo. Fairly even first half, and then Norwich were just cranking up the pressure further and further. Doesn't help when they only have one shot on target, though, and then they got done by a quick counter-attack, and Watford condemned them to another home defeat, Justin. Well, I thought Watford were the better side in terms of the amount of chances they were creating. They looked far more dangerous than Norwich did throughout the 90 minutes. Um, if you look at the individuals in the team, Norwich should have walked over uh, Watford. Uh, a double pivot of Mario Gaspar and um, Leandro... Is it Leandro Bacuna or Juninho Bacuna? It's the Murphy effect. The brothers. It's, uh, it's Leandro. Uh, is it? No, it's Leandro. It's Leandro. <laughs> Yeah, uh, well, a double favour of Leandro Bakuna and Gaspar is one that would make me nervous going into that game as a Watford fan, thinking, oh Christ, they're going to walk over us here. Um, but Watford were, you know, I thought they were relatively comfortable. Um, but I think it was, it was a good performance from them. But again, I'm left wanting a hell of a lot more from Norwich. I thought they were really, really poor. And as you say, only one shot on target throughout the game. It's, it's really disappointing. As I say, going into this game, they should have looked at Watford's form and, and licked their lips and gone, right, this is their chance to get our season kickstart again. Well, we've been rather critical of Watford recently about how the club's being run, but not about Slaven Bilic. One thing we haven't mentioned, though, is the number of injuries they've mm-hmm. got. 15 players out, I think it is. So they deserve a lot of credit for getting any form of result from this game, let alone a win. So hats off to you Slaven Bilic and the big injury list just makes this transfer window even more important for them doesn't it if they want to salvage a playoff place this season they've got to sign seven or eight new players because the squad's got a lot of problems as as it had before the injuries and it's obviously got a a lot more now that the treatment room is full they've already been busy haven't they they've got Ishmael Kone who's coming in he's a midfielder played at the World Cup with Canada and they've got Matthias Martins from Fluminese coming in who's a Brazilian forward who will probably be tasked with filling the shoes of João Pedro while he's out they'll need to fill a load more gaps over the next month so we'll see how it goes the thing is the long-term problems with Watford will persist beyond this season, whatever happens. So mm-hmm. I think that's where the frustration lies with supporters. Another set of frustrated supporters were over in Norfolk, just six points from a possible 27 in Norwich's last nine home games. How big a job does this new manager have, whoever it may be, Justin? I think it's going to be a consolidation aspect. If you look at... Um, it feels a bit like West Brom last season, where... They started the season relatively well, then faded quickly. Um, fans turned on the manager very quickly, and it's about getting this next 
it's about getting this next appointment right. Um, whether that's going to be um, Steve Bruce, which would be a carbon copy of West Brom last season, whether that's going to be Steve Bruce or um, or, or somebody else, I, I don't know. But they have to get that appointment right because if they don't, it's going to set the club back um, a couple of seasons, I think. Because for a, for a club in transition like they are, they should well they shouldn't be in transition, um, and I think that the, you know the blame for that um, lies solely at the door of Weber getting that last appointment of Dean Smith wrong. Well, the biggest job this new manager has is winning over the supporters. They're a tough bunch to win over on Norwich fans, and there is a growing lack of trust in the decisions that the sporting director Stuart Weber is making. So. Whoever comes in will have to hit the ground running, but I don't think this squad needs much at all doing to it. I've been looking at Twitter and seeing Norwich fans saying they need something like eight new players this transfer window. Norwich don't need to sign anyone in January. This squad is good enough to be finishing in the playoffs at least. And whoever comes in, it'll be a massive underachievement for them if this squad doesn't finish in the playoffs. They could probably do with a winger. I'll let them have that. But to say this squad needs a huge overhaul is not right. I think they are missing that creative linchpin that they've had in, in Buendia. Um, they were missing him last season as well. He's always been the big chance of creator. And without him, they are they are missing a lot of ammunition. But again, if you look at the form sort of from um, mid-August to the international break in September, it was very good. They were creating chances. So it's about finding that balance again a formula right with the players that they've got there at the moment. So you are you are um, you are right in that sense that they, they probably don't need anything right now. Um but maybe again in the long term they do need to identify a couple of targets that can come in. Um you know Timo Puki for example he's not getting any younger. Um Josh Sargent needs to be you know be playing down the middle that opens up a um a position on the left hand side where he's currently playing. So yeah there are there are places that need filling but Right now, I think, as you quite rightly said, the squad doesn't need much or anything at all for it to at least be finishing in the playoffs. It just needs a manager with um, a right set of ideas and the ability to get the home fans on, on board again. And we'll tell you more about who that manager could be in the news. Blackburn got back to winning ways by beating Cardiff 1-0. Bradley Dack getting the goal. First of all, this pitch did not look great. No. This pitch looked like it needed a break for the uh, cup that's coming up uh, next weekend. So I think uh, the grounds people will be very happy about that one. <laughs> uh, considering Cardiff have the fewest goals in the championship and Blackburn have the second fewest shots per game in the division, perhaps not a surprise that this was a game of few chances, but a much needed three points for Rovers, Justin. Yeah, absolutely. They're, obviously, their form's not been great. Um, it was a Big three points and a big clean sheet as well. Most most of all, I think they need to get back to to keeping clean sheets because we've seen with West Brom that you can build a good run of form based purely on keeping clean sheets and Coventry as well. Um, I, I, I do want to point out that of the last four games, they've managed to score some of the luckiest goals I've seen. Um, that's not criticising what uh, Blackburn's overall overall game. I thought they managed the game incredibly well. They were very comfortable. Cardiff were poor, but Blackburn again similar games in re- in recent weeks in Norwich for example they made they made the opposition look very average in terms of going forward because they are very organised and disciplined um, but yeah they, it's good to see Bradley Dax scoring again but getting a run of form going now especially going into January is, is absolutely vital um, but yeah it, it takes the pressure off Thomason certainly Considering they lost four out of their last five prior to this every Blackburn fan will have been delighted with a win here it wasn't flashy like all of Blackburn's wins this season, really. But they got it done, and they'll definitely take that. Doesn't really change my mind, really, on Blackburn's fortunes later in the season. Now, 
In this episode, we're going to be talking about clubs in crisis mode because there seems to be a number of clubs near the bottom of the championship <laughs> who are well and truly in crisis mode. Uh, over the past six game weeks, the bottom five teams have managed just three wins between them. Cardiff are one of those clubs. Winless in seven, the lowest scorers in the league can't sign players because of a transfer embargo this January. They are in a bit of a pickle, aren't they, Justin? That's a bit of an understatement, isn't it? Um, it's, uh, well, yeah, I don't really know where to start with Cardiff. Um, I mean, the obvious one would be to recruit a couple of attacking players. I think defensively, they aren't too bad. Um, they are okay. They are enough to to at least be staying in games. Um, but going forwards to just non-existent, um, really, really poor. I know we've criticised Huddersfield for being incredibly blunt and one of the worst attacking teams we've seen. I've seen anyway in Championship history up until um, recent weeks. But Cardiff can, or this Cardiff team can, can be up there in that category as well because there's just nothing. Um, there really isn't too much to say. There's there's nothing. Obviously, the ownerships, uh, the fans aren't behind the ownership obvious, for obvious reasons. There's obviously a transfer embargo. Um, it's a mess. It's a shambles, and it's a it's, it's a recipe for relegation. Um, it's as simple as that. It's a unhealthy blend of. Um, of going down, a lot of clubs have have been in better positions and gone down than Cardiff. But unfortunately, it's it's hard to see this spiral from from stopping unless the ownership really do take a proactive measure, which they have not done in three or four years. Well, any club who has scored slightly more goals than they've played games this season are still struggling for goals. And Cardiff have played 26 games and scored 20 goals. So they are well below the average line for a team who is shy in front of goal. But let me take you back to our pre-season predictions, Justin. I had Cardiff just outside the relegation zone. And I even said I'd be surprised if Cardiff finished any higher than 16th. I got a lot of stick from Cardiff fans mm-hmm. for those predictions. And I think most Cardiff fans right now would rip your hand off just to stay up. And... It's the same thing with them, isn't it? They are just terrible going forwards. They've got so much of a reliance on Callum Robinson. And while he's a good player, I wouldn't want to be relying on him as my main attacking outlet in the championship side. So they need more players, but of course they can't get them in because of the transfer embargo that they've got for the next three transfer windows. But the squad is so weak right now. And that is why I kept saying that I don't think they had a good enough summer transfer window. Yes, they made a lot of signings, but in terms of proven championship quality, there was very little. It was very much quantity over quality with their summer business. And yes, Mark Hudson hasn't helped the situation, um, but anyone who's pointing the fingers at him, I think you're dead, dead wrong on that because I think even more experienced managers will struggle with this squad, which just simply isn't that good. And to round off my point, that is why I had so many doubts about them at the beginning of the season. I was right about this Cardiff team. Cardiff fans, you can send me your apologies on Twitter. <laughs> a 96th minute equaliser from Johnny Egan saw Sheffield United draw one all with QPR. Incredible late drama in this game, but it's got to be said, another game where Sheffield United weren't great. Yeah, it's, it's a strange one, isn't it? Um, I mean, it's the age-old adage of good teams find ways to... to win but obviously in this case they found a way to draw I think QPR were much the better side they created the better chances and Sheffield United was certainly lacklustre they lacked composure in possession um, and you can make an argument that it's their second very so-so performance in three or maybe three and four um, 
they were really sloppy in possession. I think that's what really made them struggle and generate any momentum going forward. Um, I think QPR were wise enough not to leave themselves too open at the back, which meant Sheffield United's main asset going forwards, like breaking quickly, they weren't able to do. Um, and then obviously being sloppy in possession, they just couldn't build any attacks until sort of the last five, um, yeah, the final ten minutes. But yeah, it was a, it was a poor, poor performance. But I don't think it's one that is going to rumble on. I think it's just a, a symptom of what is a very condensed few weeks. I think we've seen Burnley not really play at their best, but still picking up points, but not really being vintage Burnley. Um, so yeah, I think it's just, you take the point, you run home. I think QPR are a bit of a bogey side for Sheffield United as well. Well, this goes back to what I was saying on Saturday. I don't think it is going to happen, but if one of Burnley or Sheffield United were to drop off, it would definitely be the Blades, wouldn't it? We've spoken... Mm already about how unstoppable a beast Burnley are but when I look at them and I look at Sheffield United I think Burnley are more of a unit well Sheffield United are perhaps a bit more reliant on individual quality from the likes of Ndai, Berger etc and these last few games have made me think there's possibly a bit of a gap between these two teams after all maybe Burnley could end up running away with it and Sheffield United are kind of in no man's land where they're happy <laughs> happily just sat in <laughs> second place with not really any challenges coming up behind them maybe Oli McBurney's absent hasn't mm-hmm. he, that's not helped things as much of a legend Billy Sharp is at Bramall Lane I think McBurney offers them a lot more in many different aspects but if the automatic promotion race were to open back up I, I do think it would be because of Sheffield United dropping off not saying it is going to happen I can't emphasize that enough but do you, do you agree with that, Justin? Uh, yeah, I can see where you're coming from. Burnley are a bit of a different beast. Um, and I think maybe it's, it's down to the amount of injuries Sheffield United have have had. They've not had a, not been able to have a consistent 11 and they've not really been able to have their best 11 out there, whereas Burnley probably have, with the exception to maybe Scott Twine. Um, so I think company's been able to develop that momentum in performances more so than Heckingbottom has with Sheffield United. Um, and I think if you go back to sort of recent weeks, I think Sheffield United have only just been able to get a lot of players back in. Tommy Doyle's back. James McAtee. Um, uh, yeah, they've, well, they've they've had players return from injury, which is a massive plus. Um, which I think has given them that additional quality that they've been able to bring into the team, which has helped turn those relatively so-so performances into wins or points in this case. Um, so I think it's a case of maybe we judge Sheffield United at the end of the January transfer window once players are back from injury, full fitness, etc. Hopefully, no more injuries come up though. I'm happy to judge them right now and say they will go up <laughs> automatically. I, I cannot, I've said it a million times now, but I would be amazed if they didn't go up at this point. But stranger things have happened. Uh, a great point and a great showing by QPR, though. A bit of a roller coaster first few games for Neil Critchley as manager, isn't it? The 3 0 loss to Luton was not a great performance at all. But in this game, there were a lot of positives which showed me Critchley will be a long-term success at Loftus Road. It may take a while for that success to come to fruition, but he is a brilliant young coach and I think QPR will be rewarded for putting their faith in him as opposed to going for someone who's a bigger name than he is. We saw at Blackpool how the players would run themselves into the ground Mm. and that was the case for QPR against Sheffield United. The longer Critley is there, the more this will happen and I think he is ideal for this QPR team. The long-term aim is going to be get promoted to the Premier League and they're not the richest of clubs at this level. It's always going to be a battle for a a team like QPR against, you know, parachute payment teams each season. So the best chance they'll have of doing it is having a manager who is proven at getting the best out of players, you know, taking a diamond 
in the rough and shining him up into what they are. Uh, and that is Neil Critchley. And it might not be the uh, this season where they see success, but as long as they're patient, I think it will come. Yeah, I, I, I think it's uh, I think it's an easy one um, to or an easy assessment to make. I think if I think even now, if you're if I was to choose between you know take everything outside of it, if I was to choose, choose between Beale and Critchley, I think I would choose Critchley just because he's got the proven record. Um, he's got the, that we know he's got that ability to improve players. You look at Josh Bowler, for example, free transfer. I mean, QPR fans will know a lot about him. Free transfer for Blackpool became one of the league's best players or at least most productive players in terms of dribbling uh, and chance creation um and he, you know he got a big money move he's, he's he's just he's got that ability to do it um and i think if you look at this game in isolation he's got to improve qpr's aspects where they are currently failing at, you know again looking at this game the final third decision making was was quite poor in my opinion i think that was the difference between them picking up three points and drawing you know elias chair had a lot of chances to make a critical decision you know at times he's shot when he really didn't have to he could have squared it to Dykes or at least put a, um, a dangerous cross in I think Critch is going to come in and get more out of um, that squad of players more out of chair I thought Dykes was brilliant but he's got that ability to do it and I just can't see it going badly I think he's a, he's a very talented manager and one that is vastly underrated he should have been appointed by someone a lot sooner mm, I'd agree with that Michael Carrick's Middlesbrough just keep on chugging along they got their sixth win in seven games by beating Birmingham 3-1 and I think it's time we shout this from the from the rooftops, Justin. Matt Crooks has been wasted in midfield for the past 10 years. Two goals. The second one beautifully taken. Also set up the third goal. He could have been the answer to England's problems at the World Cup. How has it taken this long for someone to realise how good he is up front? It's, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? A player of his size, um, so typically should not be playing in central midfield. Uh, he's always had an engine, which I think has done his, yeah, he's worked in his favour and he's good. He's good ball winner as well, which again, probably lends into more of the modern system where if you're pressing from the front, he's got that ability to be aggressive. He's got the engine to, to run all day and he's got the ability to get into the box. He's got all the attributes. I think we've mentioned it the, uh, in our previous episode. He's just got everything ticked in the box for a good number nine, hasn't he? It's, um, it's ridiculous. I'm, I'm surprised no one's seen it yet. Well, the crazy thing is, Crooks and Tube Akpom mm. were bit part players under Chris Wilde. Akpom is now top scorer in the league, and Crooks has contributed to six goals in his last 201 minutes of football. I want to know what Michael Carrick has done to these guys, and the rest of the Middlesbrough team, for that matter. I can only assume it's some sort of Space Jam scenario where he's given <laughs> Carrick's special stuff, and he's told them this is what Ronaldo used to have. Uh, but the turnaround at Middlesbrough is incredible but the way he's taken players who didn't have much of a role there before and made them into what they are now is just simply astonishing Matt Crooks would have he would give prime Drogba a run for his money right now he's been amazing and Chuck Brackpom I mean wow I don't think anyone saw that one coming so Borough quickly becoming the team to keep an eye on in the championship aren't they because they are absolutely flying playing some brilliant football and each week, we're just finding something amazing about them, which I don't think uh, anyone saw coming. Well, I think that lends to the the change in, in, in what Carrick's done to the team. Um, if you look at Riley McGree's role, you know he's a bit of a, a false winger where he allows you know he can come inside and be creative, and that allows Ryan Giles to have the run of the um, the left hand side to be able to deliver balls, uh, you know, deliver you know, very good uh, balls into the box. And you look at the switch to a four at the back. 
they play a lot lower than Chris Wilder teams did. Um, that's allowed them to, I guess, gain more territory and, and reduce opposition coming into their into their third. And that double pivot again is giving them more protection, protection, um, which has set them up nicely going forward as well. I think you know these these really subtle changes, and, and as you quite rightly say, we're, we're finding something different or something more unique and different with this character team. And I think it's quite astonishing. You know, we. We're getting what we expected from this Borough team now. Um, you know, something that we should have got earlier on in the season. You know, they've had they had eight shots on target in this game, for example. They were ridiculously creative, um, and I think that's down to yeah those those subtle changes that Carrick's introduced as time has gone on. I think that's really mature from him, and obviously he's shown that he's able to manage players as well, which is probably the hardest thing to do in football. Well, three losses on the bounce now for Birmingham. Three losses, which seemed to come out of nowhere as well because they were doing quite well beforehand and this has come as somewhat of a humbling for them I suppose hasn't it yeah it's, it's a frustrating one I've been really disappointed with Birmingham over the last sort of three or four games and I think it's been that period where you come out of it and go right let's get back to basics let's get the FA Cup game out of the way this weekend this coming weekend um, and let's get back to the basics in the league um, and I think if they, they can do that they will start to you know Stop conceding chances, stop conceding goals. Um, you know, Scott Hogan he, he, getting balls into him and getting him on the end of chances has, has dried up a little bit. Um, yeah, it's just been a, it's been a really frustrating period. I imagine. Um, I think they've probably been one of the other than Wigan maybe and 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 Blackpool. They've been one of the the, the poorer teams over this festive period. Um, so as I say, it's just about getting back to basics for uses. But it does it does manage expectations a little bit more for Birmingham City, Birmingham pundits and and supporters um, because this. Yeah, we, we've seen this from Birmingham City teams before. Good, good first half of the season, downturn in form in the second half of the season. Let's take a break. After that, we'll talk about possibly the most one-sided game in the Championship this season. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to the Second Tier Podcast. A Tom Bradshaw double helped Millwall beat Rotherham 3-0. An extremely one-sided contest this. Possibly even the most one-sided this season. I'm not sure if you can even call it a contest for that matter. We've spoken quite a bit about how Millwall have been slightly wasteful in front of goal in recent months. That was still the case here. It's just they created so many chances that they went in eventually. Tom Bradshaw should have had at least a hat-trick. Uh, Vogelsammer could have had a couple himself. There were a few other chances as well. But also worth mentioning, it could have been a different game had Connor Washington not produced a contender mm-hmm. for miss of the season when the <laughs> score was just 1-0 in the first half. All in all, though, Millwall were excellent here. Yeah, they were fantastic. And I think um, I think we're in that period of the season where Tom Bradshaw has a bit of a goal glut, so we can expect a few more goals in the next couple of games, I think, um, before they dry up for another sort of two months. Um, but yeah, it was a fantastic performance and, and one, I think it's one of those games where Millwall, they can get complacent in them. You, look, you go back to the Huddersfield game um, a few few months ago um, where they lost 1-0 at uh, the John Smith Stadium. Millwall were in great form going into that Huddersfield, absolutely dreadful. They lose 1-0. Um, so it's a type of game that Millwall have a habit of just punching themselves in the groin with you know, really shafting themselves. But they, they, Performed to expectations. They were brilliant. Um, they were creative, and again, they show a little bit, um, a little different side of their game that they, um, that they've shown all season, or since that four-two-three-one change from from Real. Just have this image now of Gary Rowe repeatedly punching himself <laughs> in the groin, which for some reason makes me giggle. Um, 
They are now in the top six, though, at Millwall. They've been in and around the playoffs pretty much all season, haven't they? Despite it being so tight in mid-table. But as long as they're in or around there come the end of the season, they've got a great chance, haven't they? It's time for another chat about a club near the bottom of the table in crisis mode. Before the World Cup, Rotherham put in some good performances, to be fair, though, to them, didn't they? They gave the likes of Burnley, Norwich, mm. tough games. But since the World Cup, they have been awful. And I'd say the worst team in the division by quite some distance one point in their last five games one win in 12 in their last four games they've managed just 19 shots and faced 64 and their xg in that time my word according to info goal they produced just 1.93 expected goals in the last four and faced 9.99 apologies if it got a bit numbery there but i found that stat absolutely incredible they've gone from a team punching above their weight being very competitive game in games to being rather abysmal actually and I don't really know what's changed Justin of course there's the manager but I don't really think he's to blame I think the reality is this squad's just not good enough I don't get me wrong there's some good players in there you've got Dan Barlasser in midfield and Victor Johansson in goal have both been excellent this season arguably two of the best players in the division in those respective positions but it lacks the necessarily necessary quality throughout the squad that will see a team like Rotherham survive comfortably across a championship season i'll have to disagree with you a little bit um i think if you look at uh at the time where paul warren left they had he had them sort of eighth or ninth i think um and there were some really solid foundations built up and i think taylor came in didn't change too much kept it relatively similar to what warren was doing and again he's achieving results um so the only sort of change you can throw at Rotherham or the only change you can maybe identify is that Taylor's tried to implement a few of his own ideas into this team I'm not saying he's a carbon copy of Paul Warren but the how open they are defensively is, is absolutely staggering really and I point I had those stats written down as well um, just the amount of XG they've conceded over the last four games is is frightening and the amount they've put on the board themselves is, is also incredibly frightening it's a recipe again for relegation um, it's just not been good enough and again if you just strip it right by that right back to basics the amount of goals they're conceding is is not good enough and I've long had the opinion that Rotherham have a good enough team to at least compete to stay up at the minute they're not competing to stay up they're hurtling into the bottom three and it's a very low bar set by the relegation struggles at the moment and as I say those foundations built by built by Warner Taylor sort of up to October just completely washed away they don't exist anymore Rotherham are fighting for their lives and until they improve quality in the final third that's where it sticks for me the improved quality in the final third I think they can stay up but it's a big if for a team with a low budget and obviously Ben Wiles' injury is a massive one as well What were you disagreeing with me on then? You said you'd disagree with me Yeah I, I think their squad is good enough to, to, to compete to stay up I think they've got oh, okay. quality to their out um, yeah, I, I think I said it in the previous episode defensively they've got some really good individuals Kyoso, Humphreys have got a lot of potential Wood is experienced, Peltier's experienced Johansson's been one of the best keepers in the division Barlas is one of the best midfielders in the division Rathbone is good but just, there is quality outside of Barlas well. and Johansson how many of these players would be good signings for other championship sides? Ogbeni would be a good signing um, Norton Cuffey I think has shown glimpses I think he'd be a good tidy loan signing for a, uh, a lot of championship clubs there's quality in this team I just don't think it's been blended well enough to get the best out of it there needs to be much more defensively um, what's the word I'm looking for streetwise uh, in the championship and they haven't been 
well, if you think there's quality in this side, then I think that's a bit of a mute point because I think you're saying there's quality in pretty much every other championship side, if uh, you are saying that. Um, but let's move on to Luton, who have now got three wins on the trot now. The latest coming in a 2-1 victory away at Huddersfield. Huddersfield were ahead in this one and looked as if they could be on their way for another shock win uh, for before normality resumed. Uh, they were at least competitive, weren't they? And if Huddersfield put in this performance... Without the two wins prior to this, it would have been seen as a positive game, I suppose, wouldn't it? We talk about clubs near the bottom in crisis mode. Huddersfield, definitely one of them, although things aren't as negative as they were because of these back-to-back wins they have managed. How do Huddersfield Town stay up this season, Justin? Sign players. I think it, it literally just comes down to bring in three, four, five players in January, which I don't think they have the mechanism to do financially. Certainly, I, think, I mean, they're up for sale now. Fotheringham's alluded to, to the fact that they're not going to bring anybody in, but he wants players, but they can't bring them in. Um, sadly, unfortunately, this, the squad still isn't good enough, despite a good run of form. I know I said in the previous episode that it could spark something. And I think the positive, if you are to take any of that um, out of it, since Fotheringham took charges, they've never, they haven't been swatted away easily. They've always been in the game. They haven't conceded too many chances. They just don't create them enough themselves. Um, if they can turn a corner in terms of that and start to open up and be a bit, um, be a bit more um, frugal in attack, then certainly they they give themselves a fighting chance. But that's not going to happen until they get more quality. I don't think. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I was quite impressed with Luton in this game. It took a while for them to get the result, but they played some nice football. And Rob Edwards seems to be getting to grips with this Luton side a lot quicker than I ever expected uh, some of the football here was what we were told was happening at Forest Green so that's always really exciting to see and I, I thought going from Nathan Jones ball to Edwards ball would take a lot longer than this but here we are three wins from three played some really nice stuff in that time and Luton fans would have ripped your hand off for that after just a month and a half into Rob Edwards as a tenure edge of the playoffs too so Luton seemed to be ahead of schedule in that respect and got to be said as well Rob Edwards' stock is just getting higher and higher <laughs> considering how Watford have been doing recently despite his departure and then on the flip side Nathan Jones' stock is having a bit of a wobble at Southampton wouldn't be the first time he's made a bad career move though would it um, West Brom's remarkable form continued at the Hawthorns they made it eight wins from nine with a 1-0 victory over Reading West Brom were great for the first hour only kept at bay by some great goalkeeping from Joe Lumley Reading made them work for the three points in the final half an hour but another very impressive performance from West Bromwich Albion yeah I think if you go back to Steve Bruce uh, Steve Bruce here and apologies for West Brom fans for giving you flashbacks but this is a game they'd have drawn or lost um uh, during yeah during his during his stint at the club mainly because um obviously the game poised so long as uh, at nil nil um, until DK scores the winner, um, they created a, an abundance of chances, and they should have been in the lead a lot sooner than than DK scoring, but they they, they weren't. And um, but I think the key change under Corbran is that defensive mentality is 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 mean. It is a f you, you're not coming near our goal sort of thing, which is an absolute yeah, page turn. I think for for West Brom, and that's the key difference here. Not necessarily scoring goals, but actually making sure opposition aren't getting their aren't getting their noses ahead. And I think that's the key mentality change here for for West Brom and Corbyn. A lot of teams in the division would would crave for that mentality. Um, and it's it's been the linchpin for them building up their their, their form. Reading are a team who will always be in, in games, um, but West Brom kept them at arm's length for for, for the majority. Yeah, they really did. Justin, I'm seeing a lot of chat online about how close the championship table is right now. Just five points separating Watford in fourth, Swansea in 15th. 
A lot of people are saying, if you can predict the top six right now, you're a football genius. Justin, we're the championship experts. Come on, then. Who would you say right now is in your top six for the end of the season? (laughs) Uh, I'm going to curse everyone here. Let's go. Uh, Burnley and Sheffield United, the obvious two, aren't they? Um, I'm finding it really difficult to decide. For me, it's going to be one of Watford or Norwich. It's not going to be both of them. It's going to be one of. Uh, Mainly because their seasons are a, a balance between... Uh, bringing players in or bringing in a manager in to, to get the blend of their respective teams. But I'm going with Watford, mainly because I rate Bullitch very highly to at least get results on the board. Um, I'm going with Millwall for obvious reasons. I've stuck with Millwall for the majority of the season. Um, and then the next one is is Middlesbrough. I think Carrick's tactical blend, um, along with what Wilder left over there with the press, is, is, is beautiful. It's working brilliantly. And they're going to continue getting results and improve their team in January. The last one is very difficult. Um, I I want to say West Brom because of their defensive record and their uh, squad depth. Um, I think they are much ahead of the teams that are around it, like Coventry, like Swansea, like uh, Luton. Um, but Luton running close, but for me, West Brom maybe just edge it because of clean sheets. I'm surprised you're questioning West Brom at the moment, but mm, yeah. you, you're, you're entitled to your opinion. My top two, staying as it is, I just cannot see Burnley or Sheffield United being shifted from those spots. As for the playoffs, I think it will end up being the top six that many people were predicting at the start of the season. West Brom, Middlesbrough, Watford and Norwich in no particular order. Middlesbrough, West Brom flying right now. The squads, are they were always good enough to finish in the playoffs anyway. They just both had terrible starts for one reason or another. I'm fairly confident Watford will be in there. They've put in some abysmal performances recently, but they look as if they're going to be strengthening a lot in this January window. Plus, Slavin Bilic is a very good manager, and that should see them over the line. Norwich are the ones I'm very unsure about. A lot depends on them getting this appointment right, which I'm not sure they will. The squad's obviously good enough, but I've not got a lot of confidence that the new manager will be the right one and I've kind of taught myself out of going with them now um, you know what I've changed my mind I, I'm let's take Norwich <laughs> out and instead I'll go with Luton Rob Edwards doing better than I expected this early on in the job and I fancy them to be in there at the start of the season so why not they've got more strength in depth than a lot of the teams around there so yeah, I'll go with Luton as opposed to Norwich in the end. We got there in the end. Um, Hull scored three in the final 12 minutes as they beat Wigan 4-1. Wigan completely capitulating here. The three goals they conceded, all very avoidable. There's shooting yourselves in the foot and then there's doing it multiple times like they did here. Or as you quite uh, politely put it earlier, Justin, punching yourself in the groin. That's exactly what Wigan were doing on three occasions. Um, they were quite fortunate. Uh, in fact, they are quite fortunate that the teams above them are also struggling to win games because otherwise they could have found themselves with a bit of a gap between the other teams fighting relegation. But it is now four losses on the bounce, rock bottom of the table, most goals conceded in the league, and they are rapidly dwindling uh, away, aren't they? Their hopes of, of staying up in the championship this season. Very positive. <laughs> oh, Justin, find the positives for me. You tell me right now where the positives are for Wigan Athletic. Yeah, I've been trying to... It's, it's been a murkier, murkier window um, for the last couple of games. I've been trying to sort of 
wipe as much muck away as possible uh, and try and see the positive story but I can't 12 goals conceded in three games is horrendous and whilst they've had spells relatively good spells they were well beaten here against Hull and I think Hull scoring three in the last sort of 15 minutes maybe flattered Wigan a lot they should have Hull, have been, Hull should have been home and hose a lot a lot sooner than that um, and I'm, I'm really struggling to see where they go from here I think like I've said uh, well, like I said in the previous episode they needed a results based manager to come in get individuals performing because their ability to, to just stop and capitulate as you quite rightly said in this game uh, and in previous games and just concede goals in, in quick succession um, speaks of that of a team in, in low confidence and they need a man manager to come in and perk them up uh, make them happy get them smiling again um, the Richardson sacking I think is one of those um, situations where demoralises a club so I think it it, it turns back to that it was a bad decision I think to, to get rid of him or at least to get rid of him without a, a, a plan in place um, I think Torre could have been a good appointment but like I've alluded to it's you just can't appoint a manager who's trying to implement a new philosophy in a team that is low on confidence um, it's as simple as that yeah it's strange how Wigan came to the decision to appoint Torre into I'm not criticising him as a coach because I think in different circumstances he may have been yeah. a good appointment for any other championship side but for a club like Wigan who are struggling as much as they are it always seemed a bit odd didn't it and mm-hmm. we won't by any means say they're relegated already because there's still a long way to go but it does seem like there's a long way to a long way for Wigan to come back from now and did Wigan just appoint the biggest name available I, I I struggle to see what the thinking was behind this move. Mm. Why not get a manager in who's got a bit more experience behind him? I mean, before Colo Torre, they tried to get Yaya Torre. So what was the <laughs> thinking here? Very strange, isn't it? But now Wigan very well, very much looking down the barrel, aren't they? We didn't think Hall were in great danger of going down despite their position in the table, did we, Justin? And that is looking very much the case now. Two wins, seeing them jump up to 16th. And they're above Birmingham and Stoke. <laughs> How's that happened? Um, mm-hmm. Liam Rosinia making progress with this side, without a doubt. Isn't he? And the strange quirk of this game, every shot on target went in, which I thought was quite <laughs> interesting. Doesn't happen very often when there's five goals in the game, does it? In one of many Alex Neal derbies this season, a 93rd minute winner from Chet Evans saw Preston win 1-0 away at Stoke. The two most inconsistent teams in the Championship, so this result really could have ended up being anything, couldn't it? Yeah, I mean, could can both teams lose? No, it's a cliche, but it's it's an easy one, isn't it? Both teams, on paper, here should have should have absolutely lost this. But um, yeah, it's it's one where I'm, I'm looking at Stoke City and that collective gasp again. Just you think they're going somewhere, and it's like they just grab your grab your shirt and just pull you back in and go. No, we're not. We're still very very average or below average in this case. Um, I saw nothing in this game that sort of got me off my seat and. Went, oh, that's interesting. I thought Stoke were relatively poor. I thought Preston didn't really offer much. They went up there to shut up shop uh, and be difficult to beat and break down. They were. Um, but I'm just left thinking Stoke are sleepwalking into a relegation battle. They've got the ability to do it, but there's nothing in this Stoke side that gets me off my seat, gets me interested or excited, um, which is not what you want to hear from a championship pundit at all. But I think it's really plainly obvious that it needs a reset. And I've said this before, it needs a reset. I think the one thing I would say is the standard of teams fighting to stay up this season is so poor that I'd be amazed if Stoke were actually in any serious danger of going down, despite them being just four points above the bottom three. In fact, 
I think these two teams, Preston and Stoke, may very well find themselves right next to each other in the table come the end of the season because when there is inconsistencies, these two are, it usually does just end up in them dwindling away into a mid or well, bottom half table finish really, doesn't it? Blackpool 1, Sunderland 1. Justin, all I see on my Twitter timeline at the moment is you arguing with Blackpool fans about whether Michael <laughs> Appleton should be sacked or not. What gives? I'm not defending Appleton at all. I'm just trying to reiterate that there's bigger issues for this Blackpool side than just sacking the manager. Firstly, where was the queue of managers wanting the job in the summer? You know, Rossinia, Liam Rossinia reportedly turned the job down, for example. Um, and I know there's a lot of rumours to whether or not he was actually offered it. Um, but there wasn't a queue of managers, which is why Blackpool sat around a manager who, uh, I think Lincoln finished 17th last season in League One. Solid manager, relatively good coach, but not clearly not good enough at championship level. Um, and then mixed that with a squad that needed improving in the summer, but wasn't. It's always going to end up like this, unfortunately. They need strength, they need ability in that team. Um, they need to have a good January. Um, so whether Appleton's in charge come 31st January or not, if they don't have a, a improved players on board, I don't think they're going to find way, find themselves out of trouble. Well, they are apparently, according to reports, re-signing Josh Bowler, which I find yeah. completely remarkable. But that would be <laughs> a bit of a game-changer, wouldn't it, for Blackpool yeah. in the second half of the season, if that were to happen. It's a one to keep an eye on there. Sunderland were a bit flat here, but apparently their squad was struck down with an illness, so we can let them off, I suppose. One loss in seven, so you can't win them all. And finally, Coventry and Bristol City drew one all. Actually, a fairly good game. This both managers yeah. will be fairly disappointed that they couldn't go out and win it. Now it's time for this. Yes, it's time for the news, and we begin again with West Brom. And if you're not a West Brom fan, I won't blame you if you're getting confused about all this talk about loans with the club. So we told you in the last episode about how the club's taken out a twenty million pound loan to help with football operations, as the club call it. Well, ignore that for a sec, because there's also a near £5 million loan that the club gave to a company owned by Chairman Guachan Lai a couple of years ago. He was originally due to repay that in September, but it was pushed back until the end of 2022. Well, he's now missed that deadline as well. And a club statement say the money should be repaid early this year. It's yet another example, though, of why West Brom fans are so unhappy about the way their club is being run and... Ultimately, who can blame them? There is absolutely no trust in the ownership and they say this loan is going to be repaid back earlier this year. Does anyone actually believe that? He's already missed two deadlines and doesn't seem particularly bothered about the ramifications of that for West Bromwich Albion. It's like Lie sees the club as this plaything, you know, a, a side hustle, something he can probably say to people, oh, I own a football club, by the way. Uh, but it's so reckless what he's doing, isn't it, Justin? The, the club is £5 million worse off while it waits for him to pay that back. And meanwhile, they're taking out £20 million loans, which could financially cripple West Brom in the long term. Now, I'm not an Albion fan by any means, but stuff like this really does anger me. Football club owners not giving a shit while you've got tens of thousands of fans who fork out each week to watch and support the team that he owns of course West Brom aren't the only championship club in a similar position but the utter contempt that's been shown by Guachan Lai over the past few days for West Brom I find absolutely disgusting well 
I mean, yeah, it's. I completely agree. I think you've hit the nail on the head with the, the situation. Um, I, it, logically, it just makes sense to sell it. I know it's not as easy as that, um, and selling a club is is very sophisticated and complicated. Um, but if he's having to loan himself money for other for his other companies, um, and he's taking out loans to fund the club, then just sell the club, right? Just put the club up for sale and say. I'll take 40, 50 million pounds now. I'll get out and go. You're not going to make, you're not making any money. You're not putting any money in. Um, you may as well collect your 40, 50 million pounds and, and get on your bike and go and leave leave everyone, leave the situation in, in better hands with better people. Um, that's, that's the most logical thing to do. It's not going to happen because football isn't that straightforward, but it just doesn't make sense to keep hold of something you're not interested in. It's costing you money. And you're making the situation worse by keeping hold of it. Yeah, I don't really see what lie gets out of this situation, which is, no. I think, one of the other things that West Brom fans are just constantly questioning. What is the benefit of this for all parties with yeah. this guy in charge of the club? Uh, let's move on. Talk sports say former Huddersfield manager David Wagner is leading the race to be the next Norwich boss. It's after the sacking of Dean Smith. The Athletics say he's on a four-man shortlist for the job. Your thoughts, Justin Peach? It's quite underwhelming. Um, sadly, I, he's not Daniel Farker. Um, and his Huddersfield team, whilst it got results, uh, I think from an outsider perspective, left a lot to be desired. Um, the promotion was remarkable, miraculous, and quite astonishing and, and a massive achievement for Huddersfield. But um, his football didn't create too many chances. And this, I think it's, it, it's more of a Dean Smith appointment, David Wagner, than that of a Daniel Farker. Um, he's Daniel uh, Wagner is very good at getting the fans on board. And I think that's a lot to be said. I think Weber said himself that he didn't quite understand the importance of the connection between the supporters and a head coach. Um, and that might help. But at the same time, this this team that he's got there right now, he's got so much untapped potential that he just needs a manager who's coming, who can come in and, and release it. And I don't think Wagner's the right man. He's previous spells at Young Boys and Schalke again. Very, very bad. Yeah. And that's why I think this would be a bad appointment. It's obvious that Stuart Webber would go down this route because of his links with Wagner. Of course, Stuart Webber, the sporting director, uh, they worked together when they were both at Huddersfield. But Wagner's career since leaving Huddersfield has been pretty shocking. Mm. At Schalke, he went 18 games in a row without a win before getting sacked. Then he went to Young Boys, who had just won three Swiss titles in a row before he came in. And the season he was there, they didn't win the title. Also, there seems to be a growing amount of distrust from Norwich fans in Stuart Webber's judgment and him giving the job to his mate, I don't think is going to help with that. He's got a clear style of play, which I suppose makes him a better option than Dean Smith, but surely there are better options out there. I mean, they are speaking to three other managers, apparently, who are on this shortlist, as it's been coined in the media. So hopefully there are better candidates out there and how much ahead he is, you know, as the leading candidate, I don't know, but we'll wait and see. Now, the transfer window is well and truly open, and I'm seeing all sorts of news about new signings flying about. That Just a reminder now that we'll only be discussing confirmed transfers on the second tier. Otherwise, we'll be here all day talking about all the different transfer rumours that are going about. So we'll do some of our transfer roundup a week on Thursday, because there's 
We've got a bit of a gap between shows now with the FA Cup coming up this weekend. Watford have yet another injury. Midfielder Tom Deli-Besheru will be out for at least a couple of months with an ankle problem. He came off in their loss to Swansea a few days ago. And finally, Scott Parker's not going to get linked with every vacant championship job anymore. It's because he's the new manager at Club Bruges in Belgium, or Club Brugge, as it's apparently meant to be pronounced. Uh, are you delighted that he's not going to be <laughs> linked with every championship job now, Justin? I am, and I'm delighted that he's got a job in another country. Um, not because I want to get rid of him, but because it's going to test him in a way that he's not been tested before, and that's what he needs. Because I think there's a good coach in there, but he's just too boring. <laughs> Fair enough. Now it's time for this. Did he? Yes, sir. You mind telling me why the hell you never mentioned this before? Yes, it's time for Didier Didity, and this is the part of the show where we have 10 players with various connections to the championship and club. All we've got to do is guess whether they played for that club or not. He's got to have made a senior appearance for them. We take it in turns to guess them as the, and keep score as the season goes on. This week, it's my turn. No, it's Justin's turn to guess, and my turn to provide the players with the clubs, uh, with the players and the clubs, and the scores are 76-75 to Justin Peach for the season. Justin Peach, are you ready? Yeah, um... I think coming you had a little bit there. I think you you're a bit worried there when you were explaining the, the rules. The, the, the way I completely messed up the intro to Didi <laughs> is not a good sign. <laughs> uh, right, your first player is Nathan Dyer and Ipswich. Did he or didn't he? <laughs> I thought he froze there. <laughs> um, Nathan Dyer and Ipswich. Ooh, yeah, got an in. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. Why not? Completely made it up. Didn't happen. Mm. Uh, zero out of one. Next up, Kieran Clark and Brighton. Did he or didn't he? Seems I uh, no no. Kieran Clark came on the scene around 2012, and Brighton were just. Oh, I might, yeah, might have gone into League One though. No, I'm going to say no. He didn't. Made that one up too. You're absolutely right. One out of two. Next up, Dan Byrne and Charlton. Did he or didn't he? That's a tough one. Again, he he came on the he burst onto the scene at Fulham, um, and had a really average spell before becoming incredibly good. Um, but I don't think he played for Charlton. Uh, there might have been a loan spell in there from Fulham, but I just I can't see him in red. You're right. Made it up. Two out of three so far. Next up, Jason Roberts and QPR. Did he or didn't he? Now, this is where the psychological thing comes in because it would be absurd to have no's up until now. <laughs> um, and if anyone's an avid listener of the show, they'll know I absolutely love Jason Roberts and Nathan Ellington. Um, so I'm going to say yes for no reason at all. He didn't. Made it up again. Oh! Jason Roberts, super fan. What a fraud. Uh, um, two out of four. Next up, Nick Powell and Brighton. Did he or didn't he? No, he didn't pay for Brighton. He didn't. Yeah, you're right. Made it up. <laughs> Three out of five. Next up is Andy King and Swansea. Yeah, he paid for Swansea. That was a loan spell there. Really random. That was recent, wasn't it? Yeah, it passed me by. 11 appearances on loan in 2018. So not yeah. too recent, but yeah. 
Marlon King, oh, hang on. Uh, four out of six. Yeah, that's right, isn't it? Four out of six. Next up, Marlon King and Middlesbrough. Did he or didn't he? Yeah, he does a loan spell at Borough. As the Strachan years when they signed everybody. <laughs> You're right, 13 appearances on loan in 2009. Uh, five out of seven you've got, going quite well. Next up, Phil Bardsley and Aston Villa. Did he or didn't he? Yeah, the old claret and blue trick. Phil Bardsley and Aston Villa. I'm trying to think. It seems too shit ass to play for Villa. So I'm going to say no. 13 appearances on loan in 2007. So he was at the start of his career. I said that. I knew there was a loan spell in there. Five out of eight. Next up, Matthew Connolly and Luton. Did he or didn't he? He came through at Arsenal and Arsenal have this habit of... um, uh, Luton have a habit of picking up Arsenal youngsters. So I'm going to say yes. He didn't. Made it up. Oh, he paused and everything. <laughs> see, the listeners won't see this, but I really did just impeach there by pulling you a face. It. Pulling a face. Well, uh, you, you uh, came to that conclusion. Five out of nine. Finally, Daryl Murphy and Sheffield Wednesday. Did he or didn't he? No, he didn't play for Wednesday. Four appearances on loan in 2005. That's ended up going a bit badly for you, hasn't it, Justin? Not as badly as you in the last one. But yeah, you, there's some gamesmanship there. There was some serious gamesmanship. I uh, certainly did bottle it in the last round of Diddy or Didn't He. But five out of ten for Justin Peach. I tell you what, our standards have seriously dropped now, haven't they? <laughs> we started off the season so well. And now we're just constantly just putting in poor scores. Seven used to be our par. And we've been... It's like we've got a cold. Bogey's everywhere, Justin. Um, so the score now is 81-75 to Justin Peach for the season, which not a huge gap. I'm quite sure of that. I look forward to evening things up next time we play Diddy or Dinty. But this has been the Second Tier Podcast. Thank you for listening to this show. We'll next be back on Sunday, but Justin won't be with us because I'm going to be joined next Sunday by football finance expert Kira Maguire. So we look forward to speaking to him on Sunday. We'll go through all the financial topics in the championship. Plenty for us to go through, old me and uh, Kizza. Uh, so we look forward to speaking to you on Sunday. <laughs> I won't tell him that I called him that. Um, <laughs> and uh, we'll see you then. This has been the Second Tier Podcast. I've been Ryan Dilks. I'll be Justin Peach. And a big thank you for listening. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,